0: Saturday. It's August 6th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker.
1: And I am Michael Haney.
0: And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail.
1: I'm excited, Ashley. We've got a great show today. We've got terrific guests. We've got Linda Wells back. We've got Terry McDonald back. And we've got Douglas McGrath back. So three great guests coming on. Always great conversation. I'm excited about that.
0: A trifecta of airmail legends. But first, we have to talk about a really personal issue, Michael.
1: Personal for you or personal for me? Because if personal for me, I got to get ready to have a panic attack.
0: All right, I'm going to give you an Ativan first. You're no longer able to take your private jet. It's officially happening. I think that private jet owners are now feeling a sense of shame for the environmental havoc that they are wreaking on our planet, and they are starting to fly in secret.
1: Is this like if a fallout of the Kardashians taking like basically like 12-minute flight? flights to go from one part of California to the other when it could have just been done in an hour-long Uber, that kind of thing?
0: We First, we had Kylie Jenner, who was shamed on the internet for taking her plane very short distance, as you mentioned. Then we had Taylor Swift, who was also shamed on the internet. It was discovered this week that her plane has taken 170 flights this year, which is 15 days in the air. The emissions calculation for those flights was essentially 8,300 tons of emissions, which is like really insane and what i found so funny about this is her spokesperson said well taylor's jet is loaned out regularly to other individuals meaning she's not the only person that's flying private on this but still it's pretty egregious and i have two solutions to this the first is if you have a private plane why don't you go on a redemption tour of sorts and use it to transport ukrainian refugees why not
1: that's pretty good
0: exactly like use your private jet for good use it to deliver supplies what have you and then the second thing that I think we're going to see is that it wouldn't shock me if we saw a very high profile individual sell or turn in or donate their private jet out of environmental ethos. And I look forward to that day. Well, this is an interesting story to watch, certainly one pertinent to the airmail universe. But I guess we should move on to other topics. <laughs>
1: Where do you want to start?
0: I mean, should we start with the most unexpected of heroes, Liz Cheney?
1: Look, I think for all of us who've been watching the January 6th hearings and as Douglas McGrath nails this week, it's like all of a sudden we've been dealing with some very conflicted emotions having this arch enemy before our very eyes become someone that we're rooting for.
0: It's bizarre. The twists and turns in American politics can never really be predicted. But this was one I did not see coming. I will say, I think that the January 6th hearings are the most fascinating television on screens this summer. They've done an incredible job producing these. And as Doug McGrath tells us, Liz has turned into a new type of American hero.
1: So that's why I'm happy to have Doug on the show. He is a screenwriter, wrote the movie Emma. He also is writes frequently for Amarel. He wrote the book for the Carol King musical Beautiful, if you've ever seen that. And he's just an all-around wonderful thinker. So let's bring him on.
0: Doug, you come to us today with The View From Here. You are giving us some deep thoughts on the most unlikely of liberal heroes, which is to say Liz Cheney. You spend a lot of your day ridiculing Republicans as you write about why has Liz captured your heart?
2: As anyone knows, there are so many reasons to hate Donald Trump. But the most recent reason is that he has caused me and many, many people to love Liz Cheney, formerly 100 percent unlovable. If you had any human feeling, you could not love her. She was far right-wing against kind of everything I cared about, except she's gotten this right. She's gotten the one thing right, which is, do we have a democracy or do we not have a democracy? So... Yes, I disagree with her positions that 14-year-old children should be able to buy an AK-47 even if they're mentally infirmed. Yes, I disagree with her position that a a 10-year-old child should have to have a baby if if she was raped by her uncle. And yet none of that matters if we don't have a democracy, if we don't have America. And she has been fighting for it through these hearings and through the committee, which she's the co-chair of. And she's more, I think she's more potent than anyone on the committee. Everyone's perfectly fine on the committee. But she has that extra authority because she is a true conservative Republican making the case. Doug, you
0: make a fairly controversial proposition in the last paragraph of your essay. You suggest that Biden needs to send Garland packing and appoint Liz Cheney as attorney general. Tell us more.
2: Well, she's about to lose her job. One of the things that's so admirable about Liz Cheney is that unlike every other person on the panel, it's a nine-person panel. The other eight people have nothing to lose by being on that panel. Seven of them are Democrats, so being on that panel is, that's that's gold for them. They raise money, they fundraise off. Adam Kinzinger, Republican on the panel, isn't running for re-election this fall, so he doesn't have to face the voters. Liz Cheney has to face the voters in two weeks. And based on the polls and based on what happened this week in a lot of the other Republican primaries, uh, she's going to lose her job. And but that's, I think, kind of perfect for the nation, because uh, for those of us who've been watching the Justice Department and wondering what they're doing and not seeing much of what they're doing in terms of Trump, what we need is the most ruthless person this country produces, which is a Republican. And Liz Cheney will be that person who will follow that. She's a lawyer. She's uh, you know, she knows the law. And if she were put in that position, this delicate tiptoeing approach that the Justice Department has been using, I think, would ramp up into really like a full, fast-moving force that would, um, let's just say, cause a lot of ketchup to be thrown against the walls of Mar-a-Lago. All jokes aside is that we have a very short amount of time for this to happen, for justice to be brought. 2024, the presidential election, is hurtling toward us like a flaming asteroid. And if a Republican becomes president in 2024, the committees are shut down, the Justice Department is taken over by a Republican, there will be no justice at all achieved. There is a short window of time in which it must be done. And and people have to make sacrifices. Liz Cheney has chosen to sacrifice. She knew what, what she was doing when she took this job. She knew it could cost her her seat in Congress. And because the cause is bigger than that, saving our democracy, she's willing to do it. So because justice must be brought in this case. You know, among the many great things, who would have ever thought Liz Channing would be full of clever Bon mots? and yet all throughout the hearings, the best lines in every hearing have been from her, unless there's been a, a, from a witness, but on the panel, the best lines have been hers, including, to your point, Michael, she said that wonderful thing about, I want to commend the women who have come forward who have been so brave, and she was particularly citing Cassidy Hutchinson, but she said, this young woman, this 25 or 26-year-old woman who has had the courage to come forward knowing that she would be attacked by 50, 60, and 70-year-old men who are hiding behind executive privilege. I mean, that's just beautiful. And what a dagger to those men. It's an extraordinary crisis that because of its enormity, I don't think people fully accept how dangerous it is. And that's why what she's doing is so valuable. It's particularly valuable in her case because she's from the most Republican of all families, the Cheneys. They shoot people in the face on hunting trips. You know, they are are tough people. And she has done it at great personal cost to herself. It's an extraordinary moment in the country's history of patriotism, what she's doing. You know, the only blessing of Trump is that it's his curse and his blessing, but all he cares about is himself. So he's evil. But he he has no discipline or ability to plan, to have any follow through in his evil plans. Whereas Ron DeSantis knows how to get things done. He knows how to get a bill passed. He knows how to ram legislation through a chamber. We were spared from the worst of Trump because he wasn't really about the job. He was just about himself. Whereas these other people, they really want to get these policies passed. Well thanks,
0: Doug. On that scary note, I think we'll have to we'll get you back here. Give us some good news on the liberal front. Doug, go go back to your reading, do some homework and report back because we now need to know who you think is talented
2: on the left. I that, that yeah, I'll need some time. All right.
1: <laughs> if you want to start your letter writing campaign for, you know, Liz Cheney as as uh, A G.
2: She'd be brilliant. And just think best of all, just think how that news would be received in the Trump home. Oh. Yeah. To be a fly on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> It's a dangerous place to be in the Trump
1: home. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, Doug. All
0: right. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. I love that guy. So provocative. I'm not sure the Liz Cheney for AJ thing is going to happen, though.
1: You know what? Stranger things have happened.
0: I like the contrarian
1: thinking. Look at the strange things that happened in your home state of Kansas this week.
0: I know. It was very exciting. It's so nice to see... Americans acting in their own best interests, which is what we saw in my home state of Kansas. Well done. It is actually renewed reason for optimism in terms of our American politics, which seemed extremely dark and hopeless until this week. So feeling good about that. We also might get this climate legislation packed Joe Manchin, looking at
1: you. You know what else is contrarian in some ways? 50 years ago, when Richard Nixon was president, he called... Timothy Leary, the most dangerous man in America because he was espousing, he was advocating for LSD. And here we are, we're now in a world, as Nancy Joe Sales reports this week, that psychedelics, specifically mushrooms and other things, they've become big business. And so much so that even last month, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, filed an amendment to expand research into psychedelics as alternative treatments for members of the military suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and was signed on by Dan Crenshaw Texas Republican. But this whole world of microdosing and mushrooms and everything has sort of become big business. And she went to a gathering in San tropez where this was all sort of front and center, right?
0: I like this story and I'm interested in this reporting, but it all strikes me as a symptom of the fact that we're all looking to escape from this reality. Like, shouldn't we focus on making our situation a bit more bearable than trying to escape from it constantly? Just a thought.
1: Just a thought. I also wonder how many people, when they say like, well, I've got high anxiety and depression, so I need to microdose. Or I need, it's just your way of finding permission.
0: So I take it you have no interest in trying this? No. You? No, I'm too much of a control freak. And I heard a funny story about a friend of mine who went to a ketamine clinic to help with writer's block and... (laughs) apparently the nurse practitioner administering the dose, she did the metric system or something like it, she measured it incorrectly. And the guy basically disappeared from the planet for three hours, has no recollection of what happened. But the only evidence that something off kilter had occurred was the next day his arms and shoulders were sore. And he realized that it's because he had spent the entire time flapping his arms because he believed he could fly. So who knows? You might get a good workout out of it. That's always an upside.
1: This is like, I mean, this is like if Woody Allen were we, remaking were we Annie Hall for right now, he would have that scene instead of at the party in California sneezing into a bowl of cocaine.
0: Oh, uh, hello. I forgot my mantra. I got to watch that movie. That's a good summer one. Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum at his finest. There are so many good mo- Okay. Anyway, I could talk about Annie Hall all day, but we're not going to go there. Michael, we got to move on. We've got important topics to discuss. The news of the day. Where shall we go next?
1: Well, the news of the day, if it's the summer, I think it's no better time than to get Linda Wells in here. She's reported this week. As I note, the sun's out, but the buns are not out. This seems to be for some people who are observing this, the summer of the frump, right?
0: I respectfully disagree with Linda on parts of this story because I think we're seeing more extremes, but we'll get into that with Linda. Linda was the founding editor of Allure, a magazine that she edited for 25 years. Now she is the health and wellness columnist for Airmail, a dear friend of ours, and one of our favorite guests to have on Morning Meeting. Welcome Linda Wells. All right. The one, the only Linda Wells. Okay. Linda, you and I've had a little bit of a tip over this because I'm under the impression that everyone is wearing a thong bikini this summer based on what I've been seeing on the beach. And you are telling me that actually the real trend is a bit more modest. What is going on?
3: Well, I'm sure that where you hang out, everyone's wearing tiny bikinis and high heels and spray tans and long acrylic nails. But there's a counter trend to every trend. There's a counter trend. And this I call the anti Victoria's Secret angels summer, the anti hot girl summer. So I think that we're seeing dad sandals, natural nails, no spray tans whatsoever, and a kind of deliberate frumpiness, kind of Elon Musk as a skin color, if that's your natural inclination, it's like all coastal grandmother, but it's adopted by people in their 20s and 30s who are doing it ironically.
1: Is this like the beach evolution of Normcore?
3: Yes, it is. It really is. It's the beauty aspect of it too. I think Normcore we thought of as kind of dad jeans and nondescript t-shirts and things. And now we've got this beauty version where it's a medical pedicure and it's unpolished nails and it's kind of just an embracing of frumpiness. It's even body hair in places that you might not particularly want body hair for many of us, but it is definitely Normcore for beauty. Okay, up Medical pedicure? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And if you haven't tried it, run, don't walk with your shoes on. And
1: your... something It sounds like something out of a David David Cronenberg movie. What a medical pedicure. It
3: does, right? It sounds disgusting. And it is kind of disgusting, which is part of its charm. It looks like you're in a dentist's office. There are these places around New York, and I'm sure they're in every city. But one of the ones I went to is called MediPedi. It looks like a dentist's office. There's nothing sexy about it. You're not getting a little glass of, like, Prosecco. And they take drugs drills and things and they deal with things like fungus and black toenails and ingrown toenails and athlete's foot and all kinds of disgustingness, corns and calluses.
1: If anyone was eating their breakfast right now, good morning. That's all I want to say. Sorry,
3: stop. I know really. It's gross. It's really, really gross. But when you leave, your feet are immaculate. I mean, they're just like you, you're really floating and you want everyone to touch the bottom of your feet.
0: Linda, this to me is like lockdown writ large. I mean, the notion of covering the body, like indulging in minimal beauty treatments. This is what we were doing for two years. I thought we had moved beyond that.
3: Well, I think for some people, they saw the value in that. The, sort of, the comfort aspect of this whole thing is what's the through line from the pandemic lockdown to today. And this idea of like, well, no, just because it's summer, I don't have to have a bikini body or my body is actually fine in a bikini the way it is after eating two years worth of pasta. And it's sort of a presentation of your natural self into the world. So I think it could be a kind of positive evolution. I'm going to choose to see it that way.
0: Okay. I'm into it. All right. So what's your bathing suit situation like this summer? What are you wearing on the beach?
3: (laughs) Don't ask me that. That's a terrible question. I mean, I've never been the person who's in the thong bikini. So that's the good. The good news is that the trend finally came around to me, but I have a sort of aversion to the sun. And so I tend to wear a SPF protective top and bottom, Because I really, what I like to do is if I'm going to be in the sun, I swim or I paddleboard or I'm doing some activity and I can't deal with the sun. So I actually even worked on a line of sun protective cover-ups and clothing and swim clothing that I talk about in the story a little
1: bit. i just like to know, Linda, you brought up Elon Musk. I'm just talking about the guys here again. I always have to stand up for the men here. So you brought up the Elon Musk. You called it a skin color. I think it's a lack of skin color. And rocking the full dad bod is then they might say, how does one feel about seeing that on the beach?
3: I think it's kind of self-accepting. I kind of admire it. I think that's what ultimately is under this. The hot girl summer was 2019, but that was also about a certain self-acceptance, but it was also about exposure and kind of flaunting yourself. This is like Okay, this is the real person, Summer, and you're just going to embrace your frumpy dumpiness if that's what you've got. It's a nice alternative to what you see on Instagram, which is sort of oppressive.
0: All right, so we're all indulging our coastal grandma here.
3: Exactly. Who
0: is the patron saint of coastal grandma?
3: Well, we do love an Ina Garden moment. The Barefoot Contessa is a wonderful example. Nancy Meyer movies are full of coastal grandmothers. And I think that that image of Diane Keaton in a white turtleneck and white jeans on the beach. I mean, how hilarious. Here you are in a turtleneck on the beach. but And maybe it wasn't high summer, but it still kind of is an insane concept. But that idea of covered up, but feeling really good and having great real estate and making a delicious dinner and making it look easy. That's a coastal grandmother in my mind. I think that Martha Stewart is, although she's pretending not to be, I think that Martha Stewart is sort of doing Coastal Grandmother as a hot girl summer. She's kind of crashing the two things together.
0: All right, Martha Stewart and what she has or has not done to herself is going to be the topic of another podcast, Linda. Yes, yes, Let's yes. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> I love
3: it. All right, well, Michael, do you have any other questions for Linda? No. <laughs> you just can't wait to get into your speedo and go parade around the beach.
1: Yeah. Cuz I got to make up for everyone else, right?
0: I know where Sasha Baron Cohen got that banana hammock that he wore in Borat. I'll get you one.
1: That's hot girl summer. That's hot boy summer. Why be such a prude? There's much more you can trim off of that.
0: (laughs) All right. On that note, we wish you a wonderful weekend, Linda. Thank you so much. We'll see you
1: soon.
3: Thank you. I hope we've turned everyone's stomachs for now and forever. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great day.
1: Bye, Linda.
0: Well, that was educational, Michael. I want to try one of these Petties. Sign me up. It sounds good.
1: Mm, Yeah, I'm just going to... I think, sit here on the beach, watch it all from afar.
0: We're going to talk about this more next week, but if you're looking for a delicious dishy read, Rich Cohen has part one of a series this week about a young man named Nathan Carmen, who was 23 years old in 2016, when he took his mother out on his fishing boat for what was supposed to be an overnight trip off Block Island. They never came home.
1: This is fantastic story weaving by Rich Cohen, who excels in narratives and dramas like this. And it's just about a strange boy who the neighbors, he was so strange, the neighbors used to call him murder boy. This is before he was arrested as a suspect in the deaths of his grandfather, who had an estate worth $40 million, and his mother. And the uh, authorities are now wondering if he was behind those deaths in order to sort of hasten his access to his inheritance.
0: It's another sad story of a troubled young man, but it's a compulsive read. So, in good news, things are not looking so great for Vladimir
1: Putin. They've gotten a little complicated for him, right? I mean, he's suffering a brain drain. At the very moment, he needs talented, smart people, especially in the tech industries and the defense industries. And yet the war in Ukraine has prompted many of them to leave, right?
0: Andrew Rivkin is one of our correspondents. He's a Russian journalist and screenwriter who emigrated after Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But he writes about Putin's curious journey towards anti-Semitism. It turns out that in the realm of Russian rulers, which is a fairly specific group, Putin was for a long time pretty un-anti-Semitic. He was friendly with Jewish community leaders. He lit Hanukkah candles. He even donated a month's salary back in 2007 towards the construction of the Jewish Museum and Tolerance Center in Moscow. Things have changed. He had at one point talked about his Jewish friends from childhood as as good kids who kept him out of trouble. But now everything is, it's starting to feel a little bit dicier for the Jewish community in Russia. On July 15th, the Russian Ministry of Justice simply ordered Saknet to shut down. Saknet, which was the Jewish agency for Israel, had been under more scrutiny by the Russian authorities for the past few years. Their branches were inspected and fined and the agency paid them, but then on July 15th, the Russian Ministry of Justice simply shut them down on the formal pretext that they were sending the data of Russian citizens abroad, but in reality like this is just another this is just another element of the Russian Israeli diplomacy that is becoming increasingly complicated in the light of the invasion of Ukraine.
1: It's a uh, great reporting. It shows Basically, what's happening is many of the Russian engineers are Jewish and they've been applying to leave and go to Israel. Now, their departure, these educated young people would obviously hurt Russia's STEM potential for years to come. And so what's happening is the Russia's fearsome security service, FSB, is trying to stop this catastrophic brain drain. And unsurprisingly, when at the if you're at the sidelines, if you're unsurprisingly, if you're at passport control, the FSB might invite you over for a talk. And the questions are very simple. Do you work in IT? What's your opinion of the war? And hmm, are you planning to return to Russia after you go to Israel? So it's intimidation. And here you have got this country where the anti-Semitism is rising, and yet he's trying to keep these Jewish engineers and designers from leaving. So interesting story.
0: Yeah, great reporting by Andrew Rifkin.
1: Which I just want to remind people, I don't know if you saw this, as Andrew also notes, Putin and Russia a few weeks ago, they released a video trying to encourage people to move to Russia. And it said it's the place uh, where we've got, quote, beautiful women, cheap gas, and traditional values. So you look it up online. It's It almost looks like something out of uh, Eugene Levy and Rick Marina's Second City kind of spoof, but there it is.
0: All right, Michael, we've talked enough about the horrors of the universe. We've also talked a bit about escapism. Do you have anything at all on that front that you can recommend to us this week.
1: Yes, I do. And it begins with a reminder from this week's issue, courtesy of David Yaffe, that Steely Dan, which released its debut album, Can't Buy a Thrill, 50 years ago, they are concluding Their absolutely normal tour next week up in Port Chester, New York. So if you're up there and you're a fan of this band, which continued on after co founder Walter Becker died in 2017, and now it's Donald Fagan at 74 going stronger than ever, then go for it because, as they say, they got a name for the winners in the world, and I want a name when I lose. Some of the best songs written in the last 50 years. My second recommends is a show called Reservation Dogs, and this comedy debuted last summer. It's now back for its second season and it's one of the most tender and thought-provoking comedies I think on TV which is not a surprise as it was co-created by Taika Waititi the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Jojo Rabbit and Sterling Harjo who is an indigenous writer and director now the show is set on a reservation in Oklahoma, and it follows four indigenous kids who are determined to get out and make it to California. So like characters in a Tarantino movie, they come up with an idea for a heist. Uh, But this is where the show really blossoms. And the spirit for me is more akin to Donald Glover's show, Atlanta, because it swerves between the real and the surreal and has great sort of like moments of thought and transcendence but each of the four kids is great as are the actors playing them and i think it perfectly captures what it's like when you want to leave your roots behind but you sense that maybe your roots are the strongest power you possess it's a show that i think is self-assured and unlike anything on tv right now so check it out it's called the reservation dogs now streaming on hulu and you ashley
0: well, unfortunately, I've been extremely distracted at work this week because I felt the need to watch all six episodes of my new favorite show, Hotel Portofino. This was recommended to me by who else? Graydon Carter, who always has his eye on the pulse of period dramas. It's, basically, it's everything an airmail reader would love in a television series. It's on PBS. It stars Natasha Macalone as Bella Ainsworth, who is an English woman who is looking for a fresh start in life in the wake of World War I. So she moves to Portofino, Italy, and opens up a hotel that she runs with her somewhat complicated husband. Her two grown children live with her as well. And the hotel is populated by all sorts of characters, some of whom are bad actors, some of whom are heroes. And what I like so much about this show is that every person in Bella's universe is treated with importance and respect. So you've got all types of characters and all types of storylines. It reminds me sort of of Downton Abbey in that sense. The cooks and the nannies have as much going on as the aristocrats do. This is going to give you some major wanderlust for travel, but you don't even need to get on an airplane to go to Portofino this summer because this show is so immersive that you're just going to live in this beautiful, beautiful world for each 55-minute episode. So I highly recommend it. It is called Hotel Portofino. It is streaming now on PBS. Go to the Italian Riviera for an hour or two. What's not to love? Uh, a second season of Hotel Portofino is currently being filmed in Croatia, of all places. But in the meantime, I will have another Limoncello, and I think we should do a toast to a fantastic great life that we have in the issue this week.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about this story. It's by Terry McDonald. It's a remembrance of, I think, and many people would argue, is was the greatest NBA player ever, Bill Russell, the former Boston Celtic who died earlier this week, and Terry got to know him while he was working at Sports Illustrated and formed a friendship with him, and he's got a unique perspective on Bill and also just why his influence was so transformative, not just in the NBA, not just in sports, but in American society in general in the 60s and into the 70s and 80s. Terry is a longtime editor, as we said, of Sports Illustrated, and he's a terrific writer as well, and we've got him here on the show now.
0: Okay, Terry, so you have a long and illustrious career in the world of sports. Tell us a little bit about how you first encountered Bill Russell and what he was like at the beginning of his
4: career. I met Bill when he was 68 years old. His playing career was behind him. He had already completely revolutionized basketball, was emerging. I mean, we all saw him as the most important civil rights activist in sports since Jackie Robinson. And he would come to Sports Illustrated events. Sometimes he would help present awards. Sometimes just his presence added a great deal for us, his great dignity and, and all that he'd accomplished. I encountered him when I was a kid. I watched him play at University of San Francisco, USF, improbably and almost out of nowhere. They won two A championships. I was like nine or 10. Anyway, I followed him since that. And when he got to the Celtics in Boston, of course, which is a notoriously racist town, When it comes to sports fans, they booed him. They told him to go back to Africa. They called him a coon. It was just disgusting. But he didn't react to them. He wrote himself in his book. They never actually talked about this. But he took that anger, that hatred that came at him and used it to build his own character. He built a basketball game the way he played. He had game, the way Spike says, but in just a profoundly impactful way. He was such an athlete, and he had such spring and such quickness, and he was 6'10", long, long arms. He made the game vertical. Basketball became vertical because of Bill Russell. Before that, you pass the ball around. The guy in the center was usually called like the pivot or something, and they didn't block shots. They just occasionally, but they tried to get rebounds and tried to run plays with their guards and forwards. Bill changed all that. He was a prototype for all of the big men who came after, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and... Anyway, on and on and on. Kevin Garnett, because of that, because of his great ability and focus and success on the court, he was able somehow to project a kind of dignity out from the NBA. There were only maybe 15 black players at the time, but think about that for a second. He projected this dignity and this rightness about doing the right thing, what sportsmanship was supposed to mean. And as a country, we always we've been thinking about this since Jackie Robinson or people have been writing about it since then. If we are who we say we are, we believe in courage and dignity and fair play and all of those things. Then we watch that play out on our sports fields and our courts and whatever. That's how we tell each other who we are. This is what we like. So we're like this, too. And Bill Russell somehow amplified that in the way that you could change the the very nature of celebrity and race and sports all mixed together money media that came pretty much starting with Bill Russell in the late 50s the 60s that's when that big mountain was really climbed.
1: I mean, you mentioned his book, which is a fantastic. I think it's one of the greatest sports books ever written, Go Up for Glory, if people haven't re- read it. But, and as I think you, he says in there, it's like, he just wanted to be a man. But I, do you think that in some ways he almost also... Paved the way a little bit for Ali to protest the war by sitting out of the war?
4: Sure. He was very vocal and showed up for Muhammad to, win, to support him.
1: You mentioned that. If you could talk about it. I love your bringing up. He had a famous look on the court, which he dubbed what?
4: Oh, his sleeping dragon.
1: And how did that work for him?
4: <laughs> very well. It was very intimidating. He would walk in. I mean, sometimes everybody would run on the court, be introduced. Not Bill. He would walk with dignity slowly maybe what was he thinking about and it was like he said in a couple places in his books and stuff he wanted them to think ah king's here and then, because of his great prowess and his ability to slap balls back down, he is scared of all, terrified to play against Bill Russell. He stopped the old game and made it new. He would go up, he would get a rebound, the out pass, and that Celtic fast break would go, and Bill ran. They went down, and they scored bang. And they did that over and over and over again. I mean, 11 championships in 13 years. Just mind-blowing. That's never going to happen
1: again. It's never going to be repeated again. No, of course not. Well, Terry, it's a wonderful remembrance of Bill Russell. You said, winner of 11 NBA titles, the first black head coach in the U.S. Major League, and I think a guy who, as you said, was a transformative force, clearly in sports, but also for American society. Yeah. Well, Terry, thank you for being here. Thanks for making time, and thank you for a moving tribute to him in this week's issue. Great to be with you guys. Thanks, Terry. Take care.
0: Bye, Terry. Have a good day. Well, that was an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to have you with us. Michael, please read us out.
1: Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co editors are Graydon Carter and Alessander Stanley. Our Chief Operating Officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King and Julie Vitelli. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. Fabulous. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.